Perhaps best known for his 1968 film, Bonnie and Clyde, stage, television, and film director Arthur Penn's masterful sense of rhythm and movement, his pioneering approach to representing violence, as well as his ability to consistently evoke powerful performances, established Arthur Penn as one of the most important American film directors of the 1960s. He was like a choreographer on the set in terms of placing the actors, understanding the perspectives, understanding what the camera will see, understanding the distances, and it was very natural to him, like a choreographer. And I think that's the theater part that... Theater and uh, live television. And live television. Most people have shot lists and they have storyboards. Arthur went to bed, woke up the next morning, ready to go, and just did it. I'm your host, Isabel Cederni, and this is Frame by Frame, an intimate introduction to some of the most important and influential film professionals working in New York today. Frame by Frame is co-presented by Post New York Alliance and Motion Picture Editors Guild because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is bit.do slash framebyframe, and you can find us on Twitter at at postny. Our host for this episode is Parabolic. Here, several Arthur Penn collaborators, including picture editors Steve Rotter, Ron Roos, Jeffrey Wolf, picture and sound editors Bob Raitano and Mark Laub, and music editor Susanna Perich, talk about their experiences working with Arthur Penn on several of his most important films. Working for Arthur, I mean, the characteristic thing about him that struck me was that he was always uh, a gentleman <coughs> and had no airs and always made you feel comfortable. Picture and sound editor Mark Lau began working with Arthur Penn on Mickey One and went on to work with Penn on Little Big Man, The Missouri Breaks, and Four Friends. Other credits include work with Ron Howard, Francis Ford Coppola, Vim Vendors, Jerry Schatzberg, and Sidney Lumet. If there was anybody who was a mensch... It was Arthur. Yes. You know, yes. He was and the, bright and intellectual and well-spoken and well-read. And, and, and not flashy at all. He'd right, come yeah. in wearing the same, pretty much the same right. kind of outfit yeah. every day with his... Uh, no sense of braggadocio, you know. Uh, no matter where you were on the film, whether you were the lowest person or the highest person, he always had a word for you. He always would say hello. You know, he would truly sort of be interested in you as a person. No matter, you know, who you were on that film. Yes, I agree with that. Picture editor Steve Rotter worked with Arthur Penn on multiple films, including Alice's Restaurant, Little Big Man, Visions of Eight, Night Moves, The Missouri Breaks, and Target. He also collaborated with directors George Roy Hill, Peter Yates, and won an Oscar for his work as editor with director Philip Kaufman on The Right Stuff. He won an Emmy for his work on Holocaust, which he shared with co-editors Bob Retano, Craig McKay, Brian Smedley-Aston, and Alan Heim. There was a, an extraordinary decency. These people treated you like you were a peer, which is not a given in this business by any means, and certainly not from directors, and certainly not directors to editors, and certainly not directors to sound editors. Usually they, they know your name in the last week that you're there. <laughs> and, and working with him was like that. Sound and picture editor Bob Raitano worked with Arthur Penn on Night Moves and has collaborated with directors such as Robert Benton and Nora Ephron. He won an Emmy for his work on Holocaust, which he shared with co-editors Steve Rotter, Craig McKay, Brian Smedley-Aston, and Alan Heim. He's a very gentle manner, Arthur does, and you feel safe around him. 
He has that kind of approach to humanity, to people around him, whether you are his friend, whether you are working for him or with him, or you always felt you could talk to him. Music editor Susanna Perich, whose credits include work with filmmakers Mike Nichols, Vim Vendors, Jonathan Demme, Roman Polanski, Martin Scorsese, Peter Jackson, and Robert Altman, met Arthur Penn as a production PA for Four Friends shortly after graduating from college. Here, she describes how he became a pivotal figure in her career. I met Arthur right after I finished school. I was at Columbia College in Chicago. And just as I graduated, some of us got the courage to go and ask for a job as a production assistant, anything. You would do anything in the beginning. And I interviewed, and and the screenplay was written by an immigrant from Yugoslavia then, Steve Tesic. Because of a lot of the scenes were shot in the areas outside of the city where the immigrant enclaves were, and me coming in with the knowledge of that language, I got the job. And I was handed a job of a production assistant and into locations so we could go and scout and I could help. And I don't remember having a second unit on that film. He would be on every set. That was the auteur part of his work and I think that that's what his belief was that that the film is an expression of an artist. One thing I I want to say though about what you what you just said is that it makes total sense now in retrospect because that was for friends was kind of a real delve into realism of sorts. Documentary director and feature film editor Jeffrey Wolf began working with Arthur Penn on Four Friends as an assistant editor, was promoted to associate editor, and then went on to work with Penn as editor on Penn and Teller Get Killed. His other credits include work with directors Sidney Lumet, Ted Demi, Lassa Hallstrom, Andrew Davis, George C. Wolf, and John Waters. Yes, for him to find somebody like you, I didn't realize that you actually were there during the I shooting. was there, and, yeah. and when the big scenes were shot... Arthur would needed to direct them, but they didn't understand the language. So I got to then slowly stand next to Arthur with a megaphone, he with one megaphone and I with another megaphone, and and say and direct them. So we became, I became closer and got to watch him direct, which was fascinating. And the next day, we I was on the set and um, and I got a, um, somebody told me Arthur Penn. He's looking for you. you, he's calling you to come to his trailer. But as I came to his trailer, he sat me down and he said, Susanna, what would you really like to do? <laughs> I said, and, uh, and I said that I always was attracted to editing. I very quickly realized that production was not really those early days and, you know, and <laughs> dirty roads and things like, no high heels and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then he asked me, well, would you consider moving to New York. And I thought, that, that was our dream, Every, all of us, you know, students that we just finished. And uh, he said he would be in touch, and he was. He talked to uh, Stan Bachner, who was the sound editor on the film, and he told Stan that I was waiting for when they were ready. And I would stay, he told me, he gave me the, n- the number for the cutting room, and he said, you stay in touch with them. And I called Stan every couple of weeks. And uh, then one April day, he said, we're ready. <laughs> and I moved. 
when I came to New York and I, I did, I got his job, but he also, in a way, took me under his wing and, uh, and took care. Yeah, he, he knew felt that responsible for you. I, in some, and he right. knew my situation. He knew I didn't have any papers here and that I wasn't sure how long I was <clears throat> going to be able to stay. And he actually found a lawyer for me. Uh, who then worked on my case. He guaranteed for my first bank account so I could get a bank account, so I could get an apartment. And he was, I was, you know, in his family, in, in, so in, his as fault. his response. <laughs> it's all him. I knew Arthur before I started working in film because he was friends with my mother and father, and he would come to their house a lot and so on. This oh. is in New York. Picture editor Ron Roos began working with Arthur Penn on his 1965 film Alice's Restaurant and continued on Little Big Man and Night Moves. Some other credits include work with directors George Roy Hill and Sidney Lumet. Ron first met Arthur Penn as a friend of his parents early in his career. My father was a psychiatrist, my mother threw parties. Social whirlwind. <laughs> yeah, social whirlwind, yeah. So he'd come to the house and so on. And was always trying to ask him about films and so on. But his wife was a psychoanalyst, so that was that part of the connection? No. Well, his wife, she also did a lot of poetry. She did a lot. She was started as an actress, though. That's yeah, how she started as an actress. Yes, right. He had a great career in the theater. He once had five plays going at once. I think it, I think it both started in the army. He somehow got assigned to a theatrical unit, and I think that the playwright Fred Coe was in at the same time. I'm not sure about that. And then Arthur directed a bunch of well, he, Fred Coe's stuff. He also went to Black Mountain. Yeah, Black Mountain yes. early on. So yeah. that you know that was a big artistic. Yeah. So Buckminster Fuller was one of the right. Ones. I mean, I don't know the, the full story. You might know it better, but his his brother is Irving Penn, the photographer. Right. And they grew up kind of poor in Philadelphia, right? right? And and when father they, was a watchmaker or something like that. And yeah. And when they came to when they came to New York, I think they were of similar age as well. Yes. I think so. Yes, exactly. And so kind of one went one direction and one went the other direction. But I think I, I never heard Arthur talk about Irving. No, no I was going to comment to that. I never heard him say a word about Irving. Irving never no. once, never once mentioned his brother. True. And they and I I did hear him say more than once that he didn't like his father. But uh, right. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, he didn't like his father. So. I started as one of the last people on um, on Alice's Restaurant. And Alice's Restaurant, I just came in, and I cleaned tracks and things like that, and I got <laughs> coffee for everyone. <laughs> I was an apprentice. And I remember Dee Dee Allen, like the first day I did some menial stuff, and the next day, Dee Dee Allen asked me to come in and work with her. I thought that was great, because I didn't expect to work with her. But she was very nice and very good, and she talked a blue streak, about what I didn't know what she was talking about, but she's talking about the film she was working on and so on. <coughs> this was... 68. 68, right, 68. So I stayed on Alice's Restaurant, and I stayed on Little Big Man for 19 months, 19 months. And an encore. Mm-hmm. And an encore, yes. An Why an encore? Because well, when the film came out, it was only in limited release, and Arthur took a look at all the reviews, and... He decided that for the mass release, we would make some changes. So Ronnie and I were there making changes, and the studio was calling us every day, when are you going to be finished, when are you going to be finished? So finally, the last day, we were mixing, and Arthur said, you know, 
maybe there's one more thing. And I said, you know, Arthur, the studio is like <laughs> killing us. They want it like yesterday. He said, oh, that's okay. Yeah. All right, yeah, we're no, finished. You're right. <laughs> yes, yeah. I remember talking to Arthur Penn when I was working, just starting on Alice's Restaurant, and he started telling me about acting. And acting to him was everything. It was everything. He said that the DP can always tell you where to put the camera. But it's acting. That's what it was. It was everything was acting to him. He was definitely a student of behavior, Arthur. You know, behavior and performance was what really the main thing that he was concerned with in any of his um, in any of his works. If you look at any of his films, his staging and the acting and the business that he creates during these scenes is I've never seen anything like it. There were just so many wonderfully executed scenes with movement and you know, it wasn't master close up over the shoulder. It was like just I've never seen anything like it. He was very, very he was like a like a choreographer on the set in terms of placing the, the the actors, understanding the perspectives, understanding what the camera will see, understanding the distances and the you know, and the, 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 the perspective exactly of what how the scene will he didn't even end think up. about it either. No, it was very natural to he, him, like a choreographer. Yeah, he could most people have shot lists and they have storyboards. Arthur went to bed, woke up the next morning, ready to go, and just did it. Yeah. <laughs> it was and all these scenes they were amazing. The choreographing of these any yeah. scene watches movies. Well, if you did live television. What Suzanne just said is true. He had a gift there was a gift that was a little beyond just yes. <clears throat> yeah. you know, the learning cuz Sidney Lumet had that live television thing too and his style was much more or Franklin Schaffner or any of those guys. Yeah, they there is a more concrete kind of way of shooting. Blocking. Yeah, and blocking. Arthur was Malleable, more, more yeah. inventive. Yes. Yeah, a lot of movement. But when I was teaching, um, <clears throat> I had students. I had students who were doing films, and I kept trying to tell them not to uh, do too much coverage and so on. They only do fifteen-minute films. I thought it was more important to get the acting and the story right. So I would show them a scene from Bonnie and Clyde, mm -hmm. and it's a scene where um, Gene Hackman first meets. We first he first meets uh, Warren Beatty. We first see them together. They go into a they go into a little cottage and they start talking, and they're talking and they they they're kidding around with each other. And what I wanted the students to see was how the coverage was. The coverage was was two over the shoulder shots, two over the shoulder shots, and master. That was all the coverage was. And what was great about the scene was they went how they weren't walked around the room. Mm and how they sat down and, and the moments that they took between lines and so on. And there was one close-up, Ain't Life Grand. Anyway, I show this film to the students all the time because I want them to see what could be done just with great, great blocking and great movement and moments, just taking moments. And it was great. it was a great scene to show for them. What he was interested in was in telling the story and in the performance, the rest didn't interest him at all. I think it has to do with the preparation, I think it has to do with the education, and I think it has to do with the moment that he understood that you knew what you were doing. You were golden, and you could, you could try things. You couldn't fail. You might make a mistake, but you certainly couldn't fail. 
Picture editor Steve Rotter became an assistant to picture editor Dee Dee Allen through an introduction by Zina Voynow, the sister-in-law of the famous Russian filmmaker Sergei Eisenstein, before serving as editor with Arthur Penn. Steve describes the process and dynamics of collaborating with Arthur during the picture edit. I was hired by Dee Dee Allen, who had seen me in the same building working for a friend of hers uh, named Zina Voynow, and so I interviewed with Dee Dee. And then I interviewed with Jerry because I was going to be Jerry Greenberg's assistant. He was the second editor. And then Richie put the final okay on it because his wife knew me from another job and she liked me. And so I think that's what put me over the top. But that probably was the most exciting day in my film career. Mm -hmm. I mean, in spite of everything that happened, that was like big time. We used to work on the film and, until it was in a, what we call a first cut and then show it to Arthur. And then Arthur would snap his fingers during the screening, and we wouldn't write, write down where we snapped. Snap, da, 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 snapped here, snapped there, snapped there. And at the end, we'd get together, and we'd recite, you snapped here, and he'd give us a note. Yes, that's it. That's how we give notes. He wouldn't, and he wouldn't come into the cutting room while you were fixing it. He would go away, and then he'd come back when you were ready. Right? He'd just go... Once he snapped before the film even started. <laughs> yeah, yes, he did. He did. was on the yeah. Academy leader. Yeah, right. But, you know, he, you'd say you snapped at this line, and he would tell you what the note was. He had an amazing memory and, and also an amazing vocabulary. You, you know, it was, like, astounding. He would always say that, you know, you had to see the whole picture in order to be able to understand you know, how, where to make changes. Right. And so, you know, you never, you'd make changes, but you would never just screen the changes. You'd screen the whole movie. Right. Some directors only screen the scenes that you have yeah. made the changes in. No, but he would but Arthur that. would watch the whole movie. Yeah. And no matter what changes you made, he'd watch the whole movie again. Mm -hmm. Always. Same thing. Yeah. And, you know, you never knew when he was going to stop until one day he stopped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like. Yeah. But the thing that I remember the most was that Working with Dee Dee and Richie, and, and so when the film was finally put together, I thought to myself, wow, this is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And Arthur came in, and he start, started changing things. I was aghast. <laughs> he changed it. It was perfect. <laughs> and then I grew to know better. I mean, it was like, you know, it's a never-ending process. But at the time, I was naive enough to think that it was finished <laughs> when uh, Dee Dee had finished. He was excited if you did things that he never thought of. Like, if you could come up with something that he liked that was surprising to him, he would get excited. And he was excited to give people a chance. On Night Moves, when Dee Dee said, uh, you know, I'd like to make Steve a uh, second editor on this movie, he was excited to do it. I said to her, you know, uh, I think I'm pretty good with dialogue, but I've never really done action scenes. And she said to me, oh, take the end of the movie. So that's what I mean. <laughs> so between the two of them, their generosity was unbelievable. There's, a, there's an important moment in film history which, which I should bring up because it involves Ron and me. Dee Dee had gone on to another oh, yes. film. Yes, right. This is an important moment yes, in film history. Dee Dee had gone on to another film, and we were Ron was an assistant, I was a sound editor, and we were finishing up on... Night moves, and Arthur decided that he wanted to trim a scene, cut the tail off of a scene, and he gave us that instruction: just, just trim the end of blah blah. 
It only took us about two hours. Yeah, right. And we were still unsure. Yeah. We had no idea what the hell we were doing. Yeah. And, and it, it shows you that you are around it all. Right. Until you make that decision. And then have the confidence to keep making decisions. Yeah, right. And then continue on from there. Mm-hmm. It is, it's a unique world. And, yeah. uh, but we did it. I mean, we got it right. Yes, we it got took, it right. It took four, four person hours, yeah, but right. we did it. Yeah, right. We did. We did. We got it right. right. What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> no, 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 no. It should maybe a little longer. And this, of course, in film, so you're adding it back and you get the machine gun, which Steve talks about right. when you get yeah, multiple yeah, splices right, right. Yeah. on the computer. Yeah, digitally, on the digital now, you don't get the machine gun. You don't. It's great. And then we ran it for Arthur, who said, yeah, fine, and walked yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We said, yeah, fine. We were, well, yeah, we fine. knew it was good. I mean, we were proud. The thing is, at that stage, you only wish and dream that you could be doing that. You don't really think that you can do it yet. You know, you have to do it to get better at it. And so as an assistant, you're observing, but there's that big gap between actually doing it and assisting. Night Moves. It's come to be a better film, I think, in my eyes, than I thought it was at the time. Arthur made some mistakes in that film, though. He made some mistakes. One of the mistakes was there was a scene with Jennifer Jennifer. Warren, yes, and Jean Hackman, where she talks about her life and so on. And it was a long scene, but a very good scene. I thought a very excellent scene. And Arthur had some people come in and look at the film. And they all objected to that scene, and he cut it, which I thought was a big mistake. It was a big mistake. Yeah, there was, it, was, it was interesting because Arthur had said, and this is something that Steve can, can comment on as well, that Arthur had said the reason he'd made this movie was because of that speech. And the speech starts off with the Gene Hackman character asking the Jennifer Warren character, where were you when Kennedy got shot? Hmm. And she says, which Kennedy? And he says, any Kennedy. And the scene has that kind of grit. And they're on a boat in the middle of the ocean. And it, was a, it wasn't a good scene. It was a great scene. And he, either Arthur had said or someone had said about Arthur that that was the reason he did the film. And this was an interesting lunch that we had, which was... Arthur had these acolytes. You remember? Oh, I remember yes, all of them. Yes. A group of young filmmakers, younger filmmakers, and we he invited them to a screening, and we went to lunch after. And I was a sound editor on the film, so that means you don't say anything. <laughs> and well, you're not really. They're just polite because they're feeding you. You were at the screening and. They went at the film, and it was clear to me that they didn't like the movie. And and you never take advice from someone who doesn't who hates your movie about improving your movie, and I think they were reaching for things, and this was one of the things they reached for, and I was aghast, and he cut the scene, and obviously I could never say anything, but <clears throat> the scene went out of the movie, and it was I agree with Ron, I mean that was a real loss. This was a yes. it was a beautifully written scene, and the two yeah. of them had hit absolute rock bottom. And you knew it. But Steve can speak to that in terms of Arthur and story. Well, <clears throat> I think that the, the reason that that scene was cut was because they all insisted that it made Hackman look weak. And really? That was the reason to, it, to do it. And, and the interesting thing about that particular scene was originally the film was called The Dark Tower. Yeah. And 
that particular line was cut out of the movie. So the movie had no title for the longest time. And Arthur said, I'm going to put a sheet up on the wall, and I want everybody to write down their suggestions for a title. So we did, and I wrote down Night Moves, K-N-I-G-H-T. And Arthur said, no, we're going to make it Night Moves without the K. So that was the origin of the name, in which I was inordinately proud at the time. Now, eh. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the most significant story <laughs> among all of these stories. Yeah, right. We were working at the mix on Night Moves, and you have a you have periods of inactivity while things are going on. Sometimes mysteriously, sometimes you're involved in pick, making fixes. And <clears throat> there was another Lower East Side Italian guy who was working on a guy named Richie Cirincioni, who was a sound editor as well. And what we would do to kill time when we weren't reading Scientific American and The Economist is we would pitch coins. So you'd stand at the mix and you you know it was about the distance from this wall to that wall and Richie and I would, as kids you'd pitch pennies and as editors you pitched quarters. And, and we were and we were pros. I mean we were really good at it. I think Steve actually was good at it too. So I'm playing against Richie, and Arthur is sitting behind the console, and he's looking, and it's much too tempting. And he says, you mind if I play? And you think at this point, okay, we got to let him win. I mean, you just can't, <laughs> you can't beat the director out of, out of lunch money. But there's, there's an instinct that you have, which is that you can't lose. I mean, you just you right. can't give this up. So we took him for about 10 bucks. And he ran out of coins and sort of went modestly back to his chair, and we continued playing. But he was in it with us. I mean, he was part of that. And there are many directors who would do that with you. Um, and you didn't do it to be a nice guy. He, he really he was yeah, having he a good time. He yeah. wanted to win. <laughs> and, and, he, and he probably wanted to win, but there was no way. I mean, there was no way you can... You know, when you look back at his overall ove of the kinds of films he did you know he really was somebody who i think was trying to kind of copy the, the french new wave and something like alice's restaurant was the beginning of that and and Pen he got like, like a long distance no it wasn't the beginning elan coquet was the cinematographer on mickey one who was and he was a big time new wave Right, uh, not the beginning, but it was. I agree with you. It wasn't the beginning, but it was. His, it's where he. I mean, he'd already developed an enormous career and become a very famous director. So even like when I went to meet him, the first, I actually got to meet him because of his sense of family, in the sense that Barry worked with Aram Avakian, and and I was Barry's assistant, and then. When Penn Teller came along, you know, I got to get an interview because of that kind of family situation. And that's why I mentioned the New Wave thing, Mark, is that in reading the script of Penn Teller, I, I went home and I, I read Roland Barth. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roland Barth, one of his books is about mythology, and I kind of read all the stuff into the script. And when I went to talk to Arthur about that, he responded very strongly to that. So I guess that's what I mean by 
he was very well read and knew a lot about a lot of kinds of things. So Arthur wanted you to talk about the script. He wanted you to give your opinion on whether there was something wrong, whether there was a weak point, whatever. He was confident, and he so in his confidence, he was open to any thought that you might have. But, you know, it's funny because he didn't like the studios for quite a long time, and he hated people to tell him what to do unless they were his friends. And so I think that that, in a way, impeded his career somewhat later on when, uh, you know, when the Young Turks sort of got into the studios and, you know, wanted to control uh, films. They wanted to control the content. They wanted to control everything. Arthur did not like to be told to take this out or don't use that. Or He was very strong in his, uh, he stuck to his guns. That's where he, you know, it was very similar to uh, to the French authors. And it, he found it very vulgar, the system that we, that we had here in terms of constant previews and especially then filling out the notes with questions afterwards. Mm. He felt that American cinema actually became more of a commercial expression that the, although there is commerce in it and we all live from it, but the fact that everything has to be catered and molded to what an audience would re would think was something that he could not accept as an artist. Yes, see, and I never worked on one of those with him. He, he, he didn't always, want to preview. No, he didn't. Yeah, he he, he previewed only when he was forced. Was, he was forced to preview. We previewed on on Penn and Teller, but you know he had a way of surrounding himself with people who would protect him. You know, I mean, right. Sam Cohen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in some cases, in this case, it was Bernie Brillstein at Lorimar, and then in the middle of the film. Lorimer got bought out by Warner Brothers, and an executive at Warner Brothers was very difficult with the film and made this preview. And then we went to San Francisco to preview, and then it scored like a 60, I think, in the preview. And the executive, whose father was a famous Hollywood person, came out and said, so how does it feel to have a film that only 60% of the audience liked? Right. <laughs> and Arthur gave the exact look that you just described. Right. Like, you know, like whatever, you know, sort of. And just we we just went back and just kept doing what we were doing. And, we all and experienced those screenings. He'd have a screening for his close friends, you know, a, a group of people. Right after the screening, I went to the bathroom, and I'm at the I'm washing my hands, and I hear somebody. I look over. It's Arthur, and he's going, but it, but it, he's urinating, but it, but it's not a steady stream. And he looks at me, he goes. I hate these fucking screenings. <laughs> but the kind of people at those screenings would be like, you turn around and there would be E.L. Doctorow or Robert Benton. Or, right, Benton was a big one. Or um, you mentioned this. Terry Malick was Terry there. Terry Malick, yes. Gene Lasko, his, his agent, uh, Sam Cohen, and Roy yeah, Schotter was there with, with um, Cynthia. Um, and I think that... Um, Mel Brooks and Arthur were friends for a while. I don't know whether they remained friends once Mel moved out to California, but yeah. they were friends. A blacklisted scientist. Um, you know, I mean, he just had that New York right. cafe really? society kind well, of... Well, I, I would say it's more like um, intellectually bent as opposed to... He wasn't like a society figure, Arthur. He was more like in, this, in a circle of intellectuals as opposed to... 
you know, popular, go out and have a good time. Yeah, what I call cafe society yeah. is that. Yeah. I mean, I think that was like... It was a, uh, a kind of disconnect between the people that hired him and, and, and some of the people he worked for sometimes. I don't know. I saw on Mickey One, we had a screening for Sam Spiegel, who produced The Chase. So he watches this very esoteric movie, and he says, uh, who's the broad? That, that was his comment. <laughs> but, but I don't think Arthur and Sam Spiegel got along because well, during the chase, after that comment, he wouldn't have. You know, no, no. <laughs> but uh, the chase, they also—I don't think he was involved with the editing at all. No, they took it away, and then he saw it in the theater. And I think he objected to some of the things that they left out. Or um, after Bonnie and Clyde, he was at a high point; he could control all his material. So, you know, a lot of these directors now have final cut, but if the studio says jump. They sort of do it. Mm. It doesn't pay for them to dig their heels in because then they won't work again. Yeah. And again, that community, as as you were talking about Bonnie and Clyde, I realized that Robert Benton wrote the script for right. That's ben, right. Benton right. and Newman. Right. So it's so that's also right. he kept you know he the the people who he liked like that he kept close and and you know I think it influenced his he, yeah he and kept I think also I think also he would advise Benton and look at Benton's films and. Mm-hmm help out when he could. I think he he was very generous to the people that he was close to in filmmaking. Yeah, as Steve said, he was tremendously confident, you know, um, and, 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 and a nice guy. I mean, he didn't become a major director. He His first film was a smash hit, you know, um, Miracle Worker. Mm-hmm. So he just went on from there. I mean, you know, it's a director's dream to have your first film because... You screw up the first time, you're, you're, it's an uphill battle. But if you don't screw up the first time and you have a smash hit, it holds you for an awful long time. Arthur's career would have been a lot better had he been willing to sort of kowtow to the studio system, which he wasn't. And to his credit, for a long time he made the movies he wanted to make. But then those things, the studio system was constantly shifting. And uh, in his later years, you know, you had like 30-year-old kids in charge of making movies, and they hire directors so they can tell them what to do. You know, don't make this guy a doctor, make him a dentist. So, so <laughs> he should be a horse trainer, not a, you know, so it's, it's uh, Arthur did not take well to that kind of suggestion. No. Um, you know, there were, there's two recollections I have that were very special about um, Arthur's films, and one had to do with the score of Mickey One, and the other one was the score of uh, Little Big Man. Oh, that was amazing. It was amazing. Am- it, am- amazing for its simplicity and brilliance. Arthur decided he wanted John Hammond to, to do the John score. John Hammond Jr. John Hammond Jr. So I don't know if you ever saw that Pakula film, Daisy Clover, Yes. Inside Daisy, Inside Daisy, Inside Daisy Clover. Clover. Yeah. And Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood is on a looping stage, and in a huge Hollywood looping stage, and there she is, this little person in the middle of the stage, you know. Well, that's sort of what recording the score to, to Little Big Man was like, because uh, they went on one of the stages at Goldwyn, and it was just John Hammond Jr. sitting in a chair and Arthur sitting next to him and a mic between them, and the, the film went, you know, they'd play a scene, 
John would do something. He'd perform to it. How fantastic. And he'd do whoops. And, and mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's just... It was, it's yeah. unbelievable. It was one of the greatest... It's fantastic. It's unbelievable. And Mickey won is Stan Getz, no? Yeah. And the, <laughs> Mickey won is Stan Getz. Yeah. And I remember the day because <laughs> it was recorded at Fine Studios out in Bayside. It's a brilliant school. It's fantastic. It's... Mm. He liked the girl from Ipanema, that, that, that song. And Eddie, Eddie sort of wrote the score, and Stan Getz performed it. Eddie sort of th said it was probably his best work. It was a thrill just being there. And, and, and the, you know, the Stan Getz, I mean, that's, a, that's an homage to, I, mean, I think jazz was accepted more abroad than here, and directors, especially of the new wave, embraced it. And, you know, when Miles Davis's score came out with the elevator to the gallows, that kind of broke the barriers and, uh, and introduced a more not so scripted approach to scoring a film. And Arthur was very much part of that. Yeah, I've had a really good uh, year for music and film, for how music went with film. I mean, Missouri Breaks is a great score. John Williams. John Williams. John Williams. Unbelievable score. And, and if you, you know, Audiophile magazine still mentioned it as one of the great uh, recorded film scores. Mm. I just remember that Nicholson went to look at the film while Arthur was <laughs> loop dubbing. And Nicholson kept calling over. I think we should, you know, have with all these suggestions. And finally, Arthur had to to go over there and, and read him the riot act. And so after that, we had no problems. But Angelo kept calling up and saying, I, I, he, stopped the, he stopped the screening. He, he's talking to me about da 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 So, but Arthur straightened him out. I was working on a film called Heat with Burt Reynolds with Elliot Kastner as the producer and he also produced also, Missouri Breaks. Right. So I said to him one day, how did you get those three guys? <laughs> After having, you know, known Arthur, how did you get those three guys in a room, to, you know, to to get them to do the film? And Elliot said that he had all three of them on the phone separately on three separate lines and he told each of them that the other one was going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so he he just kept going playing the phone back and forth like Jack, because you know, no one wanted to do it. They thought it was an, an insane idea to go to do that movie. So, once again, the choreography is unbelievable in that, and uh, the the way people die is just takes your breath away. <laughs> but a little violent. <laughs> yes, no, no, no. That that always exists in his yeah. uh, films. Yes, and you know, one thing that we really haven't said is great a guy as he was. He he was a little dark as well. I mean, he had a he had a, he had a, a sense of violence. Yeah, that he could that he showed in his films. I mean, for if you look at him, you wouldn't think there would be a violent bone in his body, but he could create these violent scenarios that were unbelievable. I mean, look, Missouri breaks, and look at night moves, and I mean, Bonnie and Clyde, and the chase. That was another film before he did. Uh, yeah, uh, before he did Mickey one. Mm -hmm. Right. Terry Malick, he did a film about this guy who had killed a lot of people. Right, and stuff. Uh, yes. right. And I remember looking at the film when I was teaching, and I would play that film against Bonnie and Clyde. Because oh, Badlands, you mean. Badlands, yeah, Badlands. 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 Right. yes. Because so much of the opening of Bonnie and Clyde was repeated in Badlands. So much of it. Yes, mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. yes. And there were... So continual much. moments Absolutely. where I would say, this, I just is this is from Bonnie and Clyde, this is from Bonnie and Clyde. That's what I meant earlier, because Altman did the same thing in Thieves Like Us. 
if yeah. you look at these like us again, you'll see the same thing. You, you know, like yeah. So you see those shot. You see these people quoting it. <coughs> I think Dee Dee Allen was a really important part of his life in the business. Really, she was a terrific editor. She was yeah, and she also editor. I think helped interpret his style, like Bonnie yes. and Clyde. You know, right. she's. I mean, you know, knowing how Arthur works, she really had a great deal to do with the, sort of the the sort of molding of that movie and um and you know of course arthur you know arthur you would present he he'd like to be presented with something and then he could start working but i never saw him like go in on his own and say do this do that do that right no but, he never but wasn't did. that a big opportunity for her too I absolutely mean, it was like one a of her first absolutely oh yeah, yes absolutely. absolutely she must have been she must have killed herself on that movie i can only imagine knowing her and I actually have a great story about Dee Dee and her dedication. So when Dee Dee would come into work, and she'd always come in around 10. She'd never come in early, but she'd stay until 11. And her husband would call her up and she'd say, Don't talk to me, I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> so one day she comes in, and she's in such a rush to get to work. And Richie Marks is in the adjoining room. She goes in, and she always used to take off her dress and put a smock on. So she goes into her room and hangs up her dress, and she's so intent about what she's got to do, she comes rushing out, and she hadn't put the smock on. <laughs> so Richie is, like, running away from her. He's, he's like, avoiding her. And she keeps trying to get in front of him. And finally, she knows she notices what happens, gives this big shriek, and goes running into the room and puts the smock on. I remember one story about Dee Dee. I was work, we were working on, um, on uh, Serpico, and... Uh, and uh, she was doing, working late and so on, and I was standing around trying to figure out what to do and wanted to get home and so on. So she finally says, why don't you go home? So I turned and went home. I was going to go out the door. And I stopped to look back at what she was doing. And she was looking at something was on the moviola, and she was looking at this, what was on the moviola. And she was thinking, she was studying what was on the moviola. And I remember seeing the light from what was on the movie reflected in her face. And it was a wonderful moment. Yeah, she, she was great. Yeah. It was a wonderful moment to see her like that. For me, and I think for everyone at the table, it's really indelibly the sort of most influential part of my career. I mean, working, and, you know, I can't divorce Dee Dee from that combination of Dee Dee and Arthur because... Um, you know, if you start out with, on the right foot and you get to practice your craft over and over again and you are mentored by the right people, uh, you know, you almost can't go wrong. Frame by Frame is co-produced by film producer and editor Isabel Sederni and producer Ben Baker. The sound engineer for today's session was J.J. Suelto of Parabolic. The music you're listening to is performed by Stan Getz and Eddie Sauter from the soundtrack for Arthur Penn's 1965 film, Mickey One. 